Welcome to the UCM. We're your tour guides, Zan Peters and Joe Semino. And we're going to be taking you through our humble little museum's collection. The exhibits may or may not be real, but the stories sure are. Enjoy your visit today at the Uncanny County Museum. up with the perfect name for a cat should i ever get a cat one day but i also think it would be a really good name for a lizard too oh what's that sigmund sigmund interesting isn't that a good name for like a cat or a lizard that weirdly fits both i'm gonna give you that i was a little skeptical at first but like you, you wouldn't you wouldn't name a dog sigmund no 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 it's too easy Mm mm-hmm yeah. But here's the thing. I want to imagine that Sigmund Freud was reincarnated as a cat. Cause <laughs> you know, in one way it's in one way it's punishment for the homophobia. Yeah, yeah, that'll do it. But it's not entirely bad as, you know, a philosopher and, you know, one of the founders of modern therapy, right? You know? Right, yeah. You know, it, it's the the good with the bad, right? right? Yeah, and I just think that cats seem like the reincarnations of flawed philosophers. You think so? That's what I think. That's okay. why I think they are capable of being great nuisances <laughs> while being <laughs> while being charming. <laughs> Oh my god, that's that oh Jesus. You're not even wrong. If if you know, if I see a cat smoking a mm-hmm. cigarette one day while reading like French literature, we're gonna have a problem. Sigmund smokes a pipe though. Absolutely yeah, of course. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh I feel like whatever philosopher gets reincarnated into my future cat, they're gonna be kind of mad because I'll probably end up naming them Panko. Because that's what I've decided my future <laughs> cat's name will be. <laughs> And yes, like the breadcrumbs. Okay, okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. very different. I mean, because you're not even you're not even a calamari guy. I like calamari. You've convinced me. You like calamari? Yeah, you made it that, okay. that one time, and I was like, yeah, this is actually really good. And we, we've eaten oh, I, you know, yeah, here, I totally forgot about here's that. Here's my deal with calamari, Zan. I will eat the tentacle parts, right? Like the fried pieces. I will not eat mm-hmm. a full little squid that looks like a squid that was deep fried. I can't do it. It just, the, mm. even mm. though I know there's no like bones, there's nothing in there. And it's just, you know, they're little, yeah. I mean, there's stuff in there, but you know, it's a little squid. I just like, I'm not there yet where I can just be like, yeah. ooh, little I mean, baby. But, but that's, that's, the, that's the whole appeal of ah. eating squid. It's like a banana. It doesn't have bones. Uh, wait, <laughs> why was a banana the first <laughs> pick on that? <laughs> God, I... have you not heard have you not what? heard like that old timey song where the guy is like oh, i like bananas because they have no bones no <laughs> what? what yeah he's like singing about how like peaches have stones inside of them okay oh I it's believe... a metaphor yeah i get it <laughs> oh, God. oh gosh um 
but yeah, also I could just imagine having like an iguana that's just going like bleh, and it's named Ty. That's Sigma. <laughs> oh God. Bleh. Siggy. Yeah. Siggy. Siggy. I was, the I was thinking Siggy the Oh mm-hmm. You're locked into mm-hmm. that now, Zan. You have to get an iguana. I guess so, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I mean after after our last exhibit, we've we've talked quite a bit about iguana. That's true, we did, yeah. You know, I have to be kind of grateful that my parents somehow avoided me getting a green iguana as a child. Oh, yeah? Was that on the I list? I was dead set on adopting a green iguana. Oh, my God. And that thing, it would probably still be alive now. Yeah. Like, th- they live a long time. They're huge. And... Oh God, no! That would have been that would have been terrible. They somehow <laughs> talked me into a bearded dragon instead. Mm. Fair enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh gosh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of metaphors, are you ready to pay to play? I guess so. Let me take out my pocket yeah. change. All here. right. Yeah, yeah. All right, everybody, line up. We're going through the turnstile. Yep, yep. Uh, w- since we are unfortunately now talking about the late capitalist postmodernist whatever oh yeah that the of of the late 20th century in the final part of our 20th century art series uh our postmodern uh, escape room um <laughs> we are now going to be entering into the third and final installment this one is through a turnstile this one you gotta cough up yeah yeah get inside Mm -hmm. and that's going to become increasingly a theme yes you would be correct in that in welcoming everybody here to our age of capital consumption exhibit as we Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately even us the curators have to pay to get in because you know what that's really what it takes here Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh yes so i mean don't don't you miss riding the subway though no no not really no have you have you been on a new york city subway zan only on vacation okay (laughs) (laughs) i guess that's fair it's not okay hold on here's the thing do you know how they always say on subways that there's like always this obnoxious people and it's just like you're just trying to mind your own business and it's somebody being like gross or weird or just like annoying yeah and then yeah but but i i just assume it's eric andre doing a bitch on the subway, trying to get me to donate to his highlight. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, see, see here, uh, when I first went to New York City and took the subway, that was me and my friends were the loud mm-hmm. people on the subway. Oh, God. And when I questioned... Did you, did you have a portable speaker? No, 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 no. We were just talking loud and being annoying, oh, but, like, okay. because we were talking loud. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's one mm-hmm. of those things where I was like... You're taking the subway. You're like, oh, my God, it's so cool. You know, we're on the subway. We're all hanging out. This is chill. No one's around us. We're in the corner. And then you think to yourself and you're like, hey, isn't there always like a weird subway story? How come I haven't found Mm -hmm. one yet? Like, how come I haven't encountered something strange? And I went, oh, it's because I'm the thing that's strange. And uh, yeah, so that was us. We were not the main characters, even though we thought we were. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. You were you were somebody's. You probably made it I, into, like, you know, somebody's uh, tweet about, like, how annoying the subway was. I'm going to be honest, though. If they did tweet about that, 
that's on them because there's way worse things that happen on the subway. I feel like I was like, well, just being loud is fine. Yes. Yeah, yeah, but it's not like, you know, I think if anything of a, of the age of a pandemic has taught me is that I don't miss public transportation because we genuinely need an overhaul in cleanliness. I miss mm. Danish public transportation because oh. that was baller. Are you kidding me? Those trains that, are amazing. You, you have some high standards there, sir. <laughs> I Unfortunately, yeah. Because like I feel like even like like New York City is not I mean, it, it's hit or miss depending on what train you get. Mm-hmm. Philly, don't even get me started. And then like Italy is weird because again, it's city by city. So like Rome is yeah. just like I'm surprised it even works. You know what I mean? Like I'm surprised the the the, uh, the trains were even running. Well, uh, Joe, you know what happened last time? Italy had someone that could make the trains. I knew, run on time. I knew that was gonna go there, and I was not intending. You said, you set me I did up it. For I that. did set you up. I did. It's my fault. There is something to be missed. I think about. I don't know. There's something like in a way nostalgic about public transportation, and. Annoying. Well, it reminds you, you know, of when you're when you're visiting a place that has public transportation that works, you realize how much better their cities are set up for that. And that all the hurdles that uh, American cities face are, are very real in terms of getting urban planners to to, to even integrate a uh, a rail system or. Uh, you know, all this stuff because of the suburbs, basically, because we have all of these people living outside of the city that have to commute to come into the city. And it's all just kind of a mess. Yes. And it is purposely set up that way, which is very uh, annoying. It it is not designed, you know, to have the ease of use of the suburbs blending into the city. Um, and if you're LA, you have to drive a car everywhere because of automotive conspiracies and whatnot. <laughs> I just, it's, it's one of my, I will always be frustrated about that aspect that I have to drive 40 minutes yeah. to take a train somewhere where I, sh- it shouldn't be that difficult, but you know. Yeah. And I mean, it, Italy, Italy is odd too, because of it. The, the cities are, you know, have a midi, all have a medieval mm. center. yeah and then and then the outskirts yeah it's a similar idea too of not mm -hmm. being it wasn't designed originally to encompass mass transportation right and they're not going to start over but this is the this is the thing that we that we love about like college towns is at least they have walkable community space yeah yeah and they have green space and these are the things that i think we are showing you know more and more of a recognition that that we want those things yes yes and not those god-awful gentrification mm-hmm. buildings because that new architecture style mm-hmm. man i can't stand it even in colleges it's very ugly. the five the five of yeah one. i hate it i don't like it at mm. all <laughs> but no yeah I, I i agree i think that that's the walkable community is something i, I just want so bad there is there is one that i pass on my walk to the studio and it really does seem like someone said, what if I made the ugliest goddamn building yeah. that anyone had ever right. seen? And then call it art. It's, <laughs> it's not even like I, I don't even know if it, 
had that much of a concept behind it. It's not a five over one. It's tall. Okay. It's like a, a proper taller building. But it's so goddamn ugly. Oh, no. Like, what, what was anyone thinking? Uh, or was nobody Nobody thinking? was thinking, man. That's just how mm-hmm. I... A lot of good people missed yeah. that one. So, as we sort of enter this uh, final stage of the 20th century, um, so this is art that is happening leading up to the millennium, leading up to uh our lives yeah and you know is still i think in a way we're now beginning to unpack and realize and analyze what this era of art uh did to our now at this point pretty globalized society yes yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. this is very much laying the foundation for contemporary art in a matter of speaking and kind of the global discourses that are at hand right now. And a lot of them stem from research that's being conducted at this time period, because a lot of the people who will be learning during this time period are part of the major artists uh, today. And, you know, it's a, it's, this is kind of, as we get to the eighties and, and the nineties, it's, it's kind of this time of really seeing who will emerge in the art world and what does it mean you know, what does art mm-hmm. mean and what does modernism even mean? How do we react to these things? What do we do with this? And this is, you know, this this hyper awareness of consumer culture and capitalism kind of starting to ruin things. Oh, ju- just starting to ruin things now? Well, people are just starting to be aware of it ruining things now. I mean, I guess if you were in the 60s yeah. that as well, but I think... You know, I I feel like this is just the the aesthetic in general that comes out of this, and the mm-hmm, mindset mm-hmm. is very very different. And you know, it's interesting to think even now that there's a nostalgia for the '80s and '90s. Although maybe we might be over that. We yeah. might be in the 2000s now. I'm not quite sure with fashion, but I know in general there's always this kind of <laughs> look back. But it's also kind of well, yeah. Th- there's there's always that delay. Because yeah. In the '80s, you realize there is. A, a consideration of uh, what what the 50s and 60s meant to them. You know, you right. see it in Back to the Future. You see it, you know, in, in later in the 90s in Forrest Gump. We have this idea. This really solidified the idea of the 50s as this prosperous, simple time. Yeah. And the 60s are not only a great social upset uh, for... You know, I I think if you were, uh, I I think people would have considered for good, um, and and we still would now, right? But there is an understanding that there was this explosion and uniqueness of the creativity going on then and into the seventies, and by the eighties, you have a very different world, yeah, and you. The, the disheartening thing is you have a lot of artists that got started in the 60s and 70s and had really important work that they established early on in their careers. And the 80s is this weird moment of suddenly 
people realizing, oh, we can sell this, we can market this, mm. the stuff that was kind of meant to not fit into a into this this perfect consumer model right at that point you know it's not the the madmen advertising anymore they have figured out a way to capitalize and profit off of the 60s artists yes it's uh it, it's it's very sad it's it, it is sort of like this this feeling of of losing faith in, in right. so many artists that you you know, kind of look at as as sellouts now in retrospect. Mm. And the the 80s saw a very a very different type of counterculture because of this and a very different pop scene, you know, as right. well. But this is the beginning of the contemporary art market. This is now people realizing art as an investment piece which seems very weird because if you have followed us up until this point we've been talking over and over again about sort of artists trying to divorce themselves from the art object yeah um especially in a time that is uh where where everything is industrially produced and now in this time art is as well and people people want paintings as investment items again you know, th this is the beginning of like Dean Koontz's career. And, you know, he's, you know, he comes a bit later, but I, what he, he was, wasn't he in finance first and then went into art because it was less regulated than the stock market? Something like that. Yeah. Or was that Damien Hirst? Am I mixing them? I don't know, man. What's the difference? No, <laughs> I just, <laughs> I'm joking, but it is, it is like, you know, you, you see the split here, I think, more so than yes. in the past. Because in the past, in the 60s and the 50s, there is this kind of encompassing feeling of action, movement, gesture. I'm using the same words, but like, you know, just this kind of grandiose, but at the same time, experimentation of everything. Yes. New media, you know, technology what can we do with this and what does it mean and it's not necessarily about yeah. making a full composition it can be further than that and then you see that happen in the 80s with in the 70s even mm -hmm. too of course this continues in the 70s with performance and with other things that we'll touch on mm -hmm. but i think this is then the shift to i can make a lot of money off of this and this can yes. become a corporate thing an item that can be yes. sold for millions and i can become the superstar that the artists mm -hmm. from the the 50s where and a lot of them end up trying yeah. to be that and i think you also get a massive pushback against mm -hmm. this and this this kind of divisiveness of, of of these kind of two groups and and i'm being very you know simplistic mm -hmm. about it because it's it gets way too complicated if you start to look at every single branch of artists because art is a huge field contrary to what they teach you in mm -hmm. in, in general art school because <laughs> it's not I think as simple as we are taught to believe where it is just, okay, you work in galleries or you're an experimental artist and like, that's it. It's a lot more bigger yeah. than that and bigger picture. But at the same time, I think, you know, when you, when you start to pit these things against each other, you start to see the difference of how performance grows through the eighties and nineties and, you know, collectives start to rise up again. And, um, yeah. you know, 
participatory artwork starts to come up and all of these different ways of working experimental video mm -hmm. especially and then you're getting jeff coons you're getting damien hirsch you're getting the big name idea of the artist selling something making something worth something because you kind of deem it so kind of similar to what yeah. we're at with brands at this point and uh, it's just yeah. a big split that but, becomes but that, prevalent. But that th you could. Th this was a time period too where they were realizing, like, oh, you can like sell '60s rock memorabilia for yeah. a, a a ton of money. Mm -hmm. Like this is this is the time period where they figured that out. Yes, you know, yeah, and that there was uh there was suddenly this market of '60s kids who grew up had money, um. And we're we're buying that stuff. Oh, yeah. But you also have sort of this sense of like, at least in the United States, like an idea of decay. Like, yeah, absolutely. A a, a like the, the feeling of like there will never be anything like the first half of, or the first and middle parts of the 20th century. Again, yeah. this, the these eras that everyone was very into for nostalgic reasons and right uh, and among others and you you see the this is the beginning of sort of the lack of hope the lack of a shiny future you see this in sci-fi media at this time you know oh yeah sort of blade runner with, star wars but yeah it star wars you know was groundbreaking for a lot of reasons but one of them being it made the future or futuristic tech look dirty you know yeah. this was no more of the polish of older sci-fi blade runner alien that grime um, I want that grimes but, but think of think about the enemies in so many uh in in uh so many like 80s action movies it's <laughs> it's people from the inner city it's uh drug lords it's this whole idea that the the freedom mm -hmm. that people allowed themselves it, you know th this is an idea that i think we have you know moved past as a society but the feeling at the time was that oh wow the sick the the inner cities have lost their way the hippies went too far there there's all of these marginalized groups that seem to be so crime-ridden uh, that it, it just seems like they, it, it seems like in losing the veneer of the 50s and 60s, we like lost our, uh, we lost something. And, you know, now we look back on this now and we're like, oh, no, it was because like people were deliberately sabotaging yeah. uh, black and queer communities back then. And that this was you know th this was as much a propaganda idea as anything else i y you know me i'm a, i'm a fan of the series best of the worst by uh red letter media yeah. on youtube oh yes and it is amazing to me how many of those b movies that they watch all have pretty much the same plot where some guy from the good old days has to whip people from the inner city back into shape and take control of their communities because yeah. that's where the blame is sort of put for all of these things you know right the destruction of detroit and the vibrant african-american cultural center that was there you know it, they, they put a freeway through it and it that, that was that was it that but we wanted to in, in a weird way 
absolve the uh ab- absolve um, America of of holding down minorities, you know? Yeah. Um it, it it always has to sort of make these communities problems their own fault. Yeah, I mean I mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest, I don't think much has changed to be fair. And and <laughs> but this is you know, looking back, we can become aware of it now, but I think that's kind of the pattern yeah. that, that we see is that people are be- maybe not becoming aware of it, but th- that's where all the blame is happening. And then it takes, I think, till the 2000s mm-hmm. to realize, you know, just like you're saying, oh, no, it's because of this. And actually, it was mm-hmm. all kind of constructed. And even now, we, you know, mm-hmm. the, a lot of contemporary artists look at at showing that and kind of investigating and yeah. saying, hold on, wait a minute, what is the history mm-hmm. here? And I think... You know, it gets into how uh, the United States has a lot of uh, reconciling to do with its own past because they <laughs> refuse to acknowledge it. And that's, you know, just the, you know, the, the it being a young country and such. But this is going to be the reckoning that comes in, in years, you know, I, I think at least. But even at this time, yeah, this is mm-hmm. where the shift has gone. It's, it's you know, it's a lot of the focus on the inner city. It's you still have the Russian, mm-hmm. you know, figure or the quote-unquote terrorists and these different archetypes and these action movies and Mm b-movies and i mean i think you know these get into what is going to kind of color the the cultural memory and the idea Mm -hmm. that surrounds a lot of how the world works and i mean let's not forget in the 80s this is reagan's time and this is the height of you know Mm -hmm. drugs or or cocaine coming in people Mm -hmm. partying blame shifted on different communities for things that aren't even happening and just a scare tactics against all other types of nations. And, and not to mention what's going on in South America where we mentioned that the imperialism was already starting. I mean, it's been there, you know, since the beginning of course, Mm -hmm. but from the United States and then it just gets worse. And then eventually we, you know, leave in the nineties and actually I don't really remember, but you know, this is especially in the 80s especially with everything going on with uh a, a certain Pablo Escobar you know this is mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. the a big point of the US getting involved and way too many people's uh policies but if you're interested in that i recommend going watch narcos they sum it up better than i ever could mm-hmm. hi there my name is colby white and i'm one of the hosts from force football facts podcast where my friend Zachary and I force our other friend Tyrell to give us insights into the game, even though he doesn't know anything about it. We use our humor to bring you weekly football news in a new way that takes fan opinions into account while also helping new fans understand why we love this game so much. You can check us out on our website, forcefootballfacts.com, or wherever podcasts are available. Hope to see you soon. I don't want to necessarily get bogged down too with the U.S. as just our focus point because this is not just there. It is kind of everywhere. But I know mm-hmm. that this is also the, I dare say, the height of like the United States trying to be like cool, technologically advanced. We're the West. Everything's free. And they're losing that. I think after Vietnam, mm-hmm. you know, if we go, let's backtrack a little bit to the 70s and start here. I think we're, we're starting people are starting to see that maybe this isn't the best thing or the best place just yet. Like maybe there's a lot actually going on that we need to kind of question a little bit here. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you know who exactly I'm talking about because I think you see it in the artworks that come out of this too. And I mean, this is the time of the rise of feminist movements and this is also the rise of performance art. 
as well that that comes yeah. out of this and you know artists like Chris Burden who's working in the United States deals with l- literally taking physical actions whether he's rolling around in glass or mm-hmm. being shot and yes he has actually mm-hmm. gotten shot by a point twenty two rifle and it was a performance recorded <laughs> and that is a huge deal in terms of like this is art Right. And everybody freaked out, of course, because the man just got shot in the gallery and he was fine. But it is the the physicality of that. This is kind of similar to the, the mm-hmm. piece I was mentioning before of of closing people in the gallery space like we did on the tour. You know, these are action. This mm-hmm. is this is demonstrating this in a normal or, or in this kind of typical white space, white cube gallery and then doing an action. But then you also have on the completely opposite side of the West, you have like Marina Ambranovich, who is rising through the ranks of performance and starting out Mm -hmm. in these really low these low budget uh performances and and you know she is a superstar now and you know without getting Mm -hmm. too 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 into it you know i think it's interesting how she's also went from being somebody who is criticizing governments criticizing uh dictatorships and other things and becoming kind of this this like are, are making artworks that stand for something and then slowly but surely be rises to the ranks of being a superstar and forgets a lot of that mm-hmm. it's the whole rock stars get old thing yeah it's, yeah it th- is there's, there's a cal there's a calvin and Hobbes comic that i feel like encapsulates all of these feelings very well and Calvin is listening to the radio and he says to Hobbes, you know, in his as as most six year olds do, he pinpoints the problem is that the the generation that created rock and roll and that made all of this music about fighting the man and fighting establishment, they themselves are now that establishment. And it kind of seems, let's just say funny. Yeah. When you have these insanely rich musicians uh you know getting paid so much to just show up and sing a song about you know uh uh rebellion (laughs) um and it's you know it's the the by you know by the early 90s like you know eric clapton is doing like his acoustic music like basically doing old covers of his own music acoustically and winning grammys for it oh god and meanwhile grunge is happening at that point you know right and and i i don't think the irony of that was lost on the newer up-and-coming generation Mm. and i think that would color sort of a lot of the art of the early 2000s which we're just going to pretend doesn't exist right now (laughs) i think we're we're kind of going to approach this from a a post uh, a pre 911 world a pre millennium yes. world this is us trying to somehow tie together the loose ends of the 20th century yeah. and what this sort of did to art this is supernatural on the rocks a new supernatural podcast hosted by two of the voices behind glee on the rocks i am emily a longtime viewer of supernatural who could never let it go And I'm Mandy, a fan of the start who did let it go, but it just wouldn't stay gone. Every episode, we cover a season of Supernatural. Digging into the mythology, the characters, and the fandom it left behind. With extra episodes when we need to talk just a little bit more. 
because there's always more to talk about, isn't there? So join us to remember the road that was. At Supernatural on the Rocks. And I I think a good place to start actually might be someone whose life kind of spans most of it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> if uh, if you'd like to start with that. Yeah, and I, I think I think it is a good place to start with someone mm-hmm. who has been working throughout the middle mm-hmm. to late 20th century. So if you come with me here, I wanted to mm-hmm. uh, take mm-hmm. a look at these two paintings by uh, the artist Gerhard Richter. And one mm-hmm. of which is titled Betty. It was done in 1988, and it's oil on canvas. And it is to our left. And the other is wow. titled Abstract Painting, 809 to mm-hmm. 3, and it is oil on canvas, and it is rather large. Mm-hmm. These are very different paintings, and they're by the same artist. Uh-huh. And so if we kind of break it down, you know, and starting from the beginning, he, Gerhard Richter has been working in painting, you know, pretty much since post-World War II, really in the 50s when he starts his kind of career. I mean, he's been alive since the 30s. He survived you know, through World War II, although he was younger, and moved mm-hmm. out of East Germany, you know, and has been through these these moments of history that we've all been we've been kind of discussing and has just never stopped painting. And even when what mm-hmm. I find interesting about him and why, you know, rather than kind of doing a, a biography here, I just wanted to kind of give a little hint of what he's been through because what I find interesting in his work is that, you know, he never stopped doing the one thing he does even through the death of painting and then the resurgence yeah. of painting. He was just painting <laughs> and doesn't really come. Yeah. It doesn't really, I don't think become as, because he's like a superstar now, of course, sought after. And, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if he cares, to be honest. The man just likes to paint. And I find that kind of, you know, he, he has a very, he has a very charming German. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. I mean, sometimes like you hear him talk about certain political things happening and he, he's not terrible by short, but it is just this very old man opinion on things. And you're like, that's kind of interesting. But then you just think about it. And it's like, this man just does what he needs to. And, mm-hmm. you know, he, he, some of his earlier works started off like, cause Gerhard Richter was working a lot with like the photograph even since the beginning, even since, you know, the photograph becomes more developed. And in his earlier works, he was painting, you know, photographs from the war and different planes and and items in that way. And they're just insanely realistic. And, but he would actually paint Mm -hmm. them from bad photographs and and he would translate that into paintings. And that was kind of like his, his thing in one end. And then he went into all different types of styles because that's the thing that he tends to do is jump styles because his work revolves around the language of painting through the styles of painting, utilizing the photograph, recreating the photograph, but playing on that where it it is aware and he is aware that the painting is a painting. It is not a photo representation. It is using the photograph for the subject matter, but also recognizing that the photograph is the thing he is painting almost as if it was a still life, Mm -hmm. not the opposite that we have now. And that has kind of become through illustration and through this, this idea of, of when photographs and especially in the eighties are becoming a lot more popular that, painting is representation it is taking a photograph painting that and then calling the painting Mm -hmm. the painting when you just kind of ignore the photo source so betty and this painting betty deals with it's a picture of his 11 year old daughter that was like taken 
It was taken in 1978. And, and it became the mm-hmm. subject of the painting in, in 1988 when it was made. And this is a year before the Berlin Wall falls, which just to give it into mm-hmm. some kind of context. And, you know, the gesture that she's making of turning away from us and that mm. it, it, it's like it's so close. Like She's just about to turn to face the audience, but never does and never will. And we're kind of left in it anticipation. Has, it has a tremendous, tremendous amount of anticipation. Yes. And yes, exactly. It, and really has the glow of a photo oh it looks identical it, it's uncanny mm-hmm. literally and it it it's yes it's masterfully done and i you know what's what's shocking about it is like this is the time where the photograph is becoming the main kind of medium for advertising graphic design and just general mm-hmm. artistic use and painting went yeah. completely abstract again and more expressive and more you know, it's just different, just a different mm-hmm. type of use. But this is opposite of that. This takes the photograph and kind of reintroduces mm-hmm. it into painting and, and, and with a different way. Um, and, mm-hmm. and then to pair this next to his abstract, which is the other kind of body of work I wanted to talk about, which, you know, right now, this is probably what he's more known for, is these massive abstract paintings. Yeah. He makes them with this large squeegee that he made himself. He has a massive studio to do it and assistance. <laughs> and he just, you know, paints right down and just finds the composition finds the colors and carefully lines it up and it is a it it very much is this kind of expressive way of painting and it is very opposite than what he's doing with the more hyper realistic works but again it's very much in line with his own kind of strategy it is still continuing to paint and removing the subject yeah. altogether and and in, even in some of his earlier abstracts there's still this relationship to that, to that photograph, to that idea of calling back um, into the past. But, you know, again, I think he serves as such a nice tie-in to the 20th century into the 2000s or into this later period because Mm -hmm. he just never stops. And yes, he sticks with the abstracts and that's what becomes his main, you know, that's what he's known for right now and that's what he does. But it's like, you look through his website and it's insane because there's just so many different types of paintings. You're like, <laughs> I can't. And then as you look, you start to see, oh, these kind of relate to one another in a weird way that you start to see them close mm-hmm. enough and, and they do match just because it's dealing with that language. It's dealing with painting as a way of, of discussing. Yeah. Well, the, the, the amazing thing about Richter is he really completely reinvents what our idea of an artistic style is yes. because every other artist before and i think the myth persists today but oh, with absolutely. less um but every artist that existed before even in the 20th century every painter was very married to the idea that you had to have a recognizable style something unique to you that you could put out there and that people would know it was yours yes um the the famous artists were all people that painted in recognizable ways right um you know you would not confuse a rothko with a Liechtenstein. you would not confuse uh uh pollock with georgia o'keefe all of those artists were definitely in an idea of uh individuality in the art yeah and richter has consistent 
ideas and qualities to his work, but he does not keep, you know, he reflects, I think, the better lessons that we have learned of about, uh, you know, how unique your art needs to be. Right. And that that's kind of freeing in a way that you don't need to be under pressure to, you know, share your own original ideas, maybe. But this idea that, you know, everything is yours and everything has to be your brand is very disrupting in an interesting way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, very, very intriguing. You know, I think this kind of goes interestingly into uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat. Yes who we have uh, some of his postcards here. Oh. That was uh, kind of all we could afford to get on loan. His yeah. stuff is very expensive now. Yes. <laughs> if you're not familiar with Basquiat, he was a uh, New York artist of Haitian and Puerto Rican descent, you know, born in 1960. So he is, you know, in his, in his 20s and the 80s and is pretty quickly recognized from a very young age to as a you know very potent artist but he was doing everything he was involved in graffiti art he was uh involved in music he Mm. was involved in painting and his ideas are at the forefront he is critiquing colonialist culture or the the aspects of our current culture that are uh, due to colonialism, you know, and his his uh, identity as a uh, black Latin mm. man in America. And, you, you know, the, the, the crazy thing about it is he just kind of knew he was dabbling in so many different things and being recognized for it. You realize how many other kind of icons of that period he knew. You know, I think he famously had a friendship with Andy Warhol, mm. but... You know, he he first met Andy Warhol in 1980 by selling him a postcard, just going up to him. (laughs) You know, this is right before John Lennon was shot. This was kind of back when uh, in New York, you could kind of just walk up to celebrities. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, at the time he was he, he got money so quickly from being a street artist in a way that I, I think was was kind of a, a different idea and different reality back then where there was now starting to be a fine art recognition of, uh, of street art. Mm, right. You know, he would have been involved with, uh, you know, that, that early hip hop culture. And, and, and then just when he's 22, he gets an exhibit at the Whitney Biennial. Jeez. You know, like, <laughs> That's nuts. Oh my god. But you know there's there's story cuz he died very young. He died right. in 88. He was only 27. Uh died of a heroin overdose. And there there's all these stories about like when when they basically went to clear out his stuff that they would just open up books and there would just be money shoved into them. Oh my god. You know? He got a lot of money really fast and clearly I think was going through the identity crisis of maybe feeling like you are making something pure and great and becoming involved in a system that you are trying to critique. Right, right. You know, because 
the wonderful things about his his poetry and his and and his drawings and everything like like he he was very into graffiti he had a uh sort of a pen name a pseudonym for graffiti called samo mm. you know same old shit uh <laughs> type of thing right right and he loved the idea that like you know you put your name on the side of a bus or on a train and suddenly your art is zooming through New York City. Mm, that's interesting. That using these vehicles to to express yourself uh, and to have reach uh, in unexpected places. And, you know, now his art is some of the most expensive art you can find. Um, you know, just in 2017... He had a painting sell for over $110 million. Jesus. That's yes. so much money. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, not to be literal, but geez, man. So you're seeing this type of figure as well, you know, come on to the, come on to the art scene in this time period. I think it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting counterpoint to, or I, I guess uh, it's an interesting thing to go along with Richter because Richter at this point, I think is already older. Yes. Oh yeah. But is, you know, coming, I think with his ideas from his generation and Basquiat is in the thick of it. And he, you know, because he, you know, sadly died so young, mm. he is kind of, he, he, he kind of encapsulates so much of this in his short life because he you know he never really got older to to have another chance to recontextualize his own work and to kind of keep following the threads that he he had right exactly gosh i mean Mm -hmm. i can't imagine if he did you know what would have become Mm -hmm. out of that but it's it's you know, it's such an interesting change, too, because it's kind of, you know, a lot of his work, so with it being in graffiti, it's so out of the sphere. It's it's in the public dimension. It's out of the gallery yeah. walls, and it just exists. That 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 idea of the, the art being on a train and being able to zoom through the city is so fantastic. I quite love mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it's interesting seeing that shift now, but it's not really yeah. that, like, it, it it's so groundbreaking, right? I mean, it really is. And then, but you you kind of contextualize it through everything, and it just makes sense from where we've yeah. kind of been moving. You know, where the fifties and the sixties have started, and what has been projected into change. And that you know, this art can be this way. It can be expressive. It can be everywhere, literally. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. then there's this pressure of dealing with the selling. Or the yes. consumption of artwork. And I mm-hmm. think, you know, it sets it up in this way nicely to talk about a lot of other things. But it's also really frustrating because there is this change, I guess, kind of, of mm-hmm. what things are going to be. And I think in the 50s, which was, you know, different than now, it, it's there's a lot more room for experimentation. And then I think you start to see artists mm-hmm. use that same idea and push it out in into the public um dimension yeah and i i i kind of with that you know with talking about basquiat to kind of just drop another the another artist name that we have here and actually if you look 
above, a little bit above the borks, there's these LED, like, skinny billboard uh, signs. You know, like, the mm. ones you've seen where the traffic arrows come on if there's road work. Yeah, um, yeah. And going across, I don't know if you have all noticed this, because I know this does seem like a bit of a just regular subway recreation, but there's different phrases going across it. <laughs> and, you know, some such as good and evil, nothing to lose, sign of maturity. And this is a part of the of uh, a collection of works by Jenny Holzer, uh, who's an American neoconceptual artist that was born in the 1950s. And, you know, her work revolves around the delivery of words and ideas in public spaces. And this one in particular that these are taken from is from her work Truisms, which is actually started in the late 70s and moves into 1984. And, as you know, what I think is actually kind of interesting in tagging along from the Basquiat conversation is that this is very much that. You know, take the zooming train, mm -hmm. but put it on a billboard in New York City in Times Square or put it on pieces of paper and hand it out to people <laughs> or put it on T-shirts. You know, she works with putting these phrases and words in places that we see every day and in things that we use yeah. every day in the mass, the thick of consum of consumer culture. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, in that work, the ones that we have above, it's really just putting out these general, you know, these cliched phrases. But then it's like. You're seeing them in the context of what you would see other things in. Maybe it's an advertisement. Maybe it's the stock, ex yeah. you know, the stock exchange numbers. Maybe it's the news headline, right? And it's just these vague, strange phrases, but they give so much meaning um, behind them yeah. and question altogether where they are. Because the thing, the thing that you always want to hope that you get out of contemporary art is seeing something familiar reframed to make you see it in a new way yes yes you know like i when we were this is going a bit off topic but like we we saw an artist and i wish i could remember the name at the american pavilion uh at the, oh. at the venice biennale and there was a cross on the wall but it had uh antlers on it the way you know you could walk into many places in the united states and just sort of see the deer antlers right. mounted on the wall and then suddenly you're looking at it and you see the cross and you're like oh it's like jesus with his arms outstretched mm. and you're just like wow okay i haven't thought of that before i haven't seen that yeah. in that object before so you know taking i mean taking those mundane phrases and you know, immortalizing them, but also mm -hmm. locating them within a very specific uh, technological moment and sort of an urban environment, you're, you know, you're looking at the the instruction yeah. that is required to to live in a place like this, mm -hmm. to to live in in a city. Yes, exactly. And that that is um the work of Martin Perriers, who is in the 2019 Venice Biennale for the American Pavilion. Oh, yeah. Oh. There you go. Yeah, okay. we gotta we gotta give the information <laughs> to the people, and I did not just Google that. Um, but <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean this is also like I I like to think of Jenny. I mean Jenny Holzer is working alongside of like Barbara Kruger, Cindy Sherman, a bunch of other right. feminist artists. But you know Barbara Kruger is also working with text, right? And if you know mm -hmm. her work, you know that Supreme ripped it off, and it's essentially that same idea, right? <laughs> but it's the brand, it's the logo, it's the you know, putting the billboards everywhere and the interjections into the public realm. And 
this is a different you know yeah. i i love that work i do like the work of barbara Kruger a lot but i wanted to actually bring in jenny holzer's into the exhibit specifically because i knew you know curatorially as we discussed we were going to mention her as well uh but i think the, you know one of the differences there is this kind of very subtle twist of these things like you're you're mentioning mm-hmm. where it's you're you're taking something so familiar, the mundaneness, the the just general thing you pass by, and you're seeing it as something new because it's promoting yeah. itself as something new. I mean, granted, yes, this is exactly what I do as an artist and where my work falls into, but it's one of those things I'm also just curious about where you can see those in, in real life, you know, everyday life, and then things kind of shift. And her work, and Jenny Holster's work, you know, looked to do that i know when you know i studied mm-hmm. her I, I there was this piece she did in florence when she was invited to to do a work there where she put um i forget the specific subject matter but it was something i think that had to do um it might have been female violence i can't remember but basically it was she put these phrases on the back of taxi cabs of on the um mm-hmm. on the window shields in the back and you could see them and so you're walking through florence and and then you all of a sudden would see these phrases going by in different places and they were installed in areas <laughs> but the biggest one this and that she's done and this is kind of where these truisms come from as well is she put a massive billboard like one of these led billboards like the roadwork signs in times square yeah. for all to see all walk around and it's stated abuse of power comes as no surprise and that's it just one phrase right in the in the location the site specific place that it's installed already creates so much meaning and so much to digest mm-hmm, behind it mm-hmm. and one uh you know connection that i think is interesting as well is looking back at even uh Cildo Mireles's work in the use mm-hmm. of the production itself to deliver the artwork and in in her case it's the use of the everyday material or these kind of advertising things these advertising materials to to show the work to have these these yeah. this conceptual work uh placed in and i think that that is so 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 interesting mm-hmm. well you know this period is you know the the 70s and 80s are it, you know where we get i think a lot of our ideas about feminist art and um you know because you you now as we said before you know now you you know you, it's it's pretty expected that artists uh are you know even if they did not they were not trained or they did not go to school like they are associated with some school of thought right, you have right. a lot of artists and curators going to school specifically for that now and you know, if you, you know, if you look at the Gorilla Girls, mm, you know, yeah. that are active in the 80s um, and, uh, you know, Judy Chicago's work, like there is a, there's also this, this re- recognition of the, the absence of, of women in the art history canon. Um, and uh it's um it's a difficult thing to sort of talk about now just in terms of looking at this work and remember remember that we have to locate it within you know kind of second wave feminism right exactly um, and understanding what it was at the time because you know not all of it i think agrees with our contemporary sensibilities of feminism no. um and you know that's that's not to say that because I, I, I want to, I, I don't, I don't think you can, uh, 
I don't think you can dismiss the importance of the Gorilla Girls. You know, their billboards would, you know, uh, point out how few female artists are in exhibited in museums, and yet this many of these famous paintings feature naked women. You know, the, exactly. there's that famous billboard. It's like, how how does a woman get into, uh, you know, the museum? She has to take her clothes off. Yep. But this this is more the idea of the collective. You know, they uh, largely remain, the Gorilla Girls largely remained anonymous, I think as a rejection of the idea of that type of art celebrity that we were talking about earlier. Yes, yes. You know, in this, you know, this this plays into why there are, why there was a prevalence of female performance artists, because they, performance art was new enough that it didn't have the white European male backlog. Exactly. <laughs> that you had to go through in order to know what was going on. You could kind of just research the contemporaries, which was uh, more uh, gender and racially balanced. Right. So th- this is, this is such an interesting time for, for, uh, for feminist art as well is it's uh it, it 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 aligns wonderfully with this performance and a trying to to really unravel the social the social and economic positions of this period because you know this is the waning days of the Soviet Union as well right and it's especially after the Soviet Union falls uh there is no longer a global advocate for social socialism and social programs mm-hmm. in the way that there was when so when when we start to think of politically charged art and art collectives this is you know th- this is sort of a response to to these larger global forces that are happening as you know capitalism consumes everything and and the the soviet union for many reasons <laughs> is is disintegrating and that there is uh there is a gap in the world of collective effort for bettering a community which is not to say that the soviet union uh yeah always worked to better no. communities yeah but but at least there was a global advocate for a, a collective yes thinking. yeah exactly and now once that's gone it's the we won we did it individualism succeeded and look at us now <sighs> yes. yeah it's in you know very frustrating and i think you know, but part of the shadow of this as well in this thought process is also dealing with postmodernism or the, you know, the concept yeah. of postmodernism, which, you know, I think we've mentioned it a few times. But for those who don't know, it's a late 20th century movement characterized by skepticism, subjectivism or relativism and a general suspicion of reason and a sensitivity to the role of ideology in asserting and maintaining political and economic power. And that is the label we have on the wall that I just read because I don't talk like a robot. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I, you had that. I was going to say I was going to say you had that. Ready. Oh, I did. I did. I specifically yeah. placed it, but for these reasons, because you know, I think it's one of yeah. those terms that yes, I could totally just talk, run off the top of my head, but it is so dense 
as a concept yeah. that it needs to be specifically labeled because there's a lot going on with it. And then you get into where but, that moves But you us. hear people talk about it now. Like, I think people consider that if people don't think that contemporary art is modern art, because you'll hear people say, like, yeah. I don't like modern yeah, art. Yeah, and you're like, like okay. <laughs> but, but then they... Uh, then they might throw out postmodern because they probably heard <laughs> yeah, that as well. Yeah, and it's never used right because postmodernism is the yeah. 80s and the 90s. And I mean, well, that was like the running joke in the MFA. It's always like, yeah. oh, we're in post postmodernism because <laughs> it's like, what, what right. are we? Like, you know, it's this same idea that it basically said we're building up to everything and after modernism and now we're like, oh, we're in postmodernism. Now what? And then it's, mm-hmm. you know, branched off into different thought well, processes. But- but here, here's here's the here's the, the the crucial thing I think about um, as as there's sort of this rain in in the in the eighties and nineties as as lots of corporate powers that be want to adjust adjust how they're going to profit and sell off sell the creative output of people you know there is a return to a a lot of things a return Mm -hmm. to painting a return to wanting to be seduced by art right but at least in the academic sphere by the 80s there is a pretty solid understanding that the history history in general is not linear and there are multiple perspectives and there are multiple narratives happening and so there is no grand narrative to really return to. The The grand narrative idea of history is kind of rejected by that point. Exactly. And it, it's it's interesting, like, comparing, like, like the, the 60s, I think, and to some extent the 70s are what, in the, in the United States at least, we consider the era of social rights. Mm. And let's say you jump over to uh, South Africa, mm. the 80s and 90s are, this is apartheid. This yeah. is th- this is an era and a generation of artists that, you know, are, you know, you're, you're not going to say are on a delay, but are going through similar ideas and national growing pains that the United States would have been going through. Right. The type of segregation that is incredibly shocking to someone that you see it in color and you see it happening in the nineties when we tend to think of, well, at least we stopped, you know, making people drink out of different water fountains. Mm-hmm. And then to see similar things happening so recently, so close to now, is incredibly jarring. Yeah. You know, and, and you have artists like uh, David Coleani mm-hmm. and, you know, other other collectives, other artists, they that are you know use using a a similar sort of very uh very abstracted and disassembled looking almost a type of type of art to express a a broken society and a story that is happening you know it, like everywhere else is a is a 
product of uh, colonial history mm-hmm. and um, global arguments over economic systems, but is going through its own uh, unique problems uh, as as it faces, you know, an, an uncertain uh, racial future. But when you consider that this is you know, a generation, at least in the States, that is now aware of the Holocaust, which wasn't really well known by everyone until the 70s. You know, in the 90s, we have the Rwandan genocide. Yeah. Uh, And the Balkan Wars, too. Yes. You have other genocides happening after there seemed to be this there seemed to be some kind of recognition that okay well we have the un now we have we have sort of the vocabulary and the tools to recognize genocide yeah uh why aren't we able to prevent these things why are these things still happening it really upends your idea and chronology of the 20th century when you consider uh when when you consider the 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 genocides and the apartheid societies that still existed in the 90s you know yeah yeah i mean it gives you an entire different kind of perspective as well um you know, I think to what's going on and, and maybe even in this sort of Western locked case on things and on life, mm-hmm. it's almost like you're so fixated on what's going on in your own, you know, frontal view yeah. that you forget about what's happening on the perspective. So as soon as you find out about one thing, you don't realize that others are, are happening. Yeah. And, you know, in part. Yeah, well, it, it's it, it, it's the problem. Like if if we we're going to look at, you know, Judy Chicago's uh, dinner party. Yeah. The thing that you look at that as, you know, for those of you that don't know, the dinner party is uh, an installation that it was it was a huge deal when my mom went to art school because it was, you know, contemporary art at that time. But, um, you know, it's basically this triangular uh, table that features women from mythology and history, and they all have a place setting sort of based off of them and their aesthetic. And, you know, when you look at it, it's 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 interesting now to see it as very, very Western and very, very. And, you know, kind of kind of rooted in uh, kind of kind of rooted in a very. white european idea of of women's history yep that's not to say it's bad and not important art and it's certainly a a beautiful piece to appreciate in its own context sure but you know you're like walking through these and like some of these are like let's be honest made up women yeah that they're going through and they're trying to tell the history of women and they Really, I think the last, you know, it like starts with like Eve. Okay. You know, and it goes through history, you know, and it's like, 
Diana the Huntress. And then it's, um, you know, you're, you're going along and along and along. And then it ends with Georgia O'Keefe. Oh, but. And <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> That's a real person. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it doesn't entirely read to us the same. And that that's OK. Yeah. Sensibilities can change. But you now would recognize it as where are if you're trying to tell a global story of the history of women and their contributions. There's, again, this emphasis on the individual mm -hmm. and there's an emphasis on certain geographies and certain religions that, you know, like ha having having a, a dinner place for Pocahontas, it does not does not really represent our idea yeah. of of how we create equity with uh, in indigenous people uh, across you know our our shared concerns exactly. about about life. It's it, it's very the the lean in feminism the yeah. the, the the girl boss thing <laughs> uh, that that sort of comes out of this that, yeah. that sort of comes out of this era yeah um, for sure you know a, a good things come out of this era you know I think uh, a recognition of craft art because that yes. seemed yes. to be the the realm of art that women historically were quote unquote allowed to do right. Right. Um, and, and we're, and we're very prolific in, it's just, you know, it's a diff, but I, I, I don't think you would, it, it's certainly a different attitude than we would have now about. <laughs> yeah. That's one way of putting <laughs> about it. How, <laughs> about how we would talk about the art of women. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because you're missing a whole perspective and it's this problem of, cause it's like, I don't want to discredit this. I don't want to I don't want to necessarily mm -hmm. spend either too long of just being like, oh, well, now, now this is bad because we're in the 21st century and it's better. But it's it's like, no. Yeah. But, you know, it's like there's this kind of there's this thing in the in the, in in the feminist movements as well that kind of just focuses on Western feminism and specifically even like an Anglo-Saxon version or and a now white European. It would also but also now it would also kind of read as, you know, kind of trans exclusive. Yeah, well, exactly. Because, be, because the, you know, this is the era of like uh, vagina art yeah. and, you know, the the idea of, you know, sort of the backwards logic of women are not just uh, baby making machines, which is totally a valid thing to. Yeah, to absolutely. Protest. But also an emphasis on a vagina is what makes you a woman. Yeah, and that's, that's where I get lost. Because that's when it's like, oh, wait a minute. And that's a big question that's changed now, especially in more contemporary, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. know, I think yeah. feminist yeah, arts and values yeah. as well. And I think, like, that's kind of the big difference. And, of course, we don't get there without this. But it is one of those questions that's going on of, like, this is one perspective. Like, even American feminism is different than Italian feminism, which is different than, oh, yes. you know, others that are happening throughout. And, and you know, it's it's worth considering maybe, hold on, there's, no, you know, the American values attached to to you know, feminist works and how that's being shown is maybe not 
the right one or maybe it's not the full story yeah, and that's okay yeah. but maybe you know we have to include other perspectives into that and maybe we need to start looking at it mm-hmm. so i think it's also one of those problems now too that people like it feels like we're at this point in our series and we're mm-hmm. also at this point in just the time period that this is like where things got cut off where you know mm-hmm. you're most likely, if you're taking a basic course, or you're taking something to sum up art, art in the 20th century, you know, this is going to explain, this is what feminism is, this is where it starts, and here we are now, 20 years later. And if mm-hmm. nobody tells mm-hmm. you about contemporary art, you don't know that it changes. You just know that this is what it is, and then it blends into these different mindsets. And it's not just for feminism, it's for anything. You know, and that's, mm-hmm. I think, what we even wanted to try to show here, is that it's not... It doesn't cut off here. It doesn't stop. You know, the 20th century doesn't just jump to 2020 or 2021 or, or, you Mm -hmm. know, 2035 when the art will completely shift. You know, it's like it's constantly building year after year. And like, I think that's worth noting if that makes any sense mm-hmm. on my long-winded approach to this. But, like, because I think, like, one of the, the the things that come to mind, at least for me, of the, like, shaping moment, and as we're talking about this change in perspective, mm-hmm. I have to look back at the, or at least call back to the Whitney Biennial in 1993. And, yeah. you know, I don't know how much you know about this, Zam, but this is a, this is where I have, I I think that a lot of perspectives in the art world change. Because this is mm-hmm. when you get the more international and also marginalized groups coming in at the forefront of the art world and yes. not no and no longer necessarily in the background. And this starts that, or at least for a big, you know, explosion of it. Let's let's for the sake of you know discussion start here. Yeah. And you know, with this, without getting too crazy into the politics and the drama and the just obnoxious critiques of it. Um, yeah. This biennial essentially was, you know, it's it's in 1993. The Whitney Biennial is one of the biggest things that ha- that happens in New York because the Whitney's huge and it's yeah. a big gallery space. And, you know, at this point, the art world's still kind of dominated by white cis men, you know, and the big names are mm-hmm. still those from the 50s and the 60s and who were kind of, you know, the superstar artists. And that doesn't just go away all of a sudden. It's still pretty much relevant. Yeah, yeah. And... You know, at this point, and it's through the curatorial team, which is led by Thelma Golden, John G. Uh, Handhart, Lisa Phillips, and Elizabeth Sussman, and they are the ones who take kind of charge of shaping this biennial. And what they decide to do is bring in artists from all over the art scene and those kind of you know and all over all Mm -hmm. the art scene and all over different backgrounds as well and just some to give this is a long list but just some that come Mm -hmm. to mind are glenn lignon fred wilson carol walker lorna simpson bill viola nan golden trinity minha jimmy durham and that's just a few to kind of mention and it it should also be noticed too that thelma golden's the only uh, african-american curator on the team and is kind of fronting this yeah, and also on the uh problematometer, uh Jimmy Durham may or may not be Cherokee. Right, yeah. That's <laughs> I'm still sitting with that and that's um, you know a thing cuz that's more like 
What when is that when is that happening? Is that happening at this time too that that's being called into question? Well, Jimmy Jimmy Durham in the 60s and 70s I think was more known for uh his civil rights work. Right. He sat on a lot of uh groups for Native American rights and stuff and was on like a lot of councils. And I think in the the 80s and 90s was kind of he got more into the art and poetry and stuff. Right. And, Okay. That that that's at least my understanding of it and you know continues to be an artist to this day. And yeah, we we don't have to talk about him too <laughs> much. But yeah, th- but there is you can see this is very much like this isn't this is an effort at diversity, but it is very much maybe a white person's idea of diversity. Yes. Yes, it's it's still we are we are getting there. You know what I mean? This is yeah, not Yeah, no no no, that uh-huh. not not to not to say people shouldn't try because I think that that's kind of the feeling that I get now is like now that we criticize all of this stuff all of the time, you sometimes feel like, well, why do we try anymore? Oh, no. Um <laughs> no, <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah, I Yeah, I mean cuz like, you know, there's uh you know, there's the the Havana exhibition. There's sort of, you know, at least been in, in more recent years, there's been more certainly better efforts and to make Documenta and the Biennale more diverse. Uh, yeah. Well, Documenta more than the Biennale, to be honest. But yeah, yeah, continue. <laughs> but, you know, there's... There's always something to pick at. There's always yeah. something to kind of ob- ob- observe about those things. Uh, I mean, I've been kind of more recently fascinated with the Havana Biennial mm. and, you know, kind of want to check that out one day. Yeah. But yeah, uh, so so sort of go on. This sounds like a great start. I'm sure it went great, <laughs> well, right? Well, yes, but no. Uh, it's it's <laughs> This is, you know, just to sum it up, this becomes one of the most controversial biennials to ever happen in New York at the time. And it, you know, mm-hmm. I, when I first kind of read, there's a, there's a great article on it on Vulture magazine. I think that's what it's called. And it kind of goes through, this is like the birth of identity politics within contemporary art now. Um, or it really, when it becomes like a, a conversation more than just, you know, yeah. in the works, but you know, this puts different people at the front versus your, your like, you know, Sol Witt, Frank Stella, all these other types of big names, even Abramovich at the time. Yeah, you know, this is like yeah. this is a very different approach. And a lot of these artists that I mentioned are still working today and are very relevant today. You know, and what's interesting, like you know, even like take Fred Wilson for example, someone who's a, he's a curator and an historian yes. who goes into museums to rearrange, and actually he's invited into museums to rearrange yeah. collections and bring out those oh, yeah. not seen. Carol Walker famously working with the silhouette and one of the it, probably the mm-hmm, most famous mm-hmm. painter right now, you know, um, yeah. and they're they're shown at this show and it's received. Well, you know, to kind of give it some context, you know, some of the works shown besides their own is one, you know, that includes George Holiday's 1991 10-minute beating of Rodney King was included as mm-hmm. a video work. Mm-hmm. And even, um, yeah. you know, those like tags you get when you go to art museums, the really big ones, and they're like these little foldable things you put on, like we're all wearing here. Um, yeah. Well, there was a work by Daniel J. Martinez, and it was through it was using those pins that were given out to 
people coming in and it's and on a few of them it mm-hmm. would say i can't imagine ever wanting to be white in all capital letters you know so these kind of it's all yeah and i think i think it's quite funny uh, personally i i think it's hilarious but like you know very much dealing with identity politics very much coming up as the main i don't think it would have been thrown around at the time but well actually it, it was because it was a criticism you know so this is received yeah. by critics so harshly and we're talking top really? uh yeah like bad like we're talking yeah. this is the top white you know cis male art critic right the person who's obsessed with minimalism probably obsessed with the 60s and you know wants that nostalgia and they freak out like i'm just gonna be mm-hmm. blunt about it because it is like you know and it, it, it is like take all white rage that we all are kind of yeah. trying to like deal with and uh yeah. combat and it's just that embedded in the r1 and it explodes and you know when i first saw this and i heard about this you know this Mm -hmm. being on and i was and i was reading about it i was a little confused because i was like oh man like you know they're showing you know the rodney king you know beating the police brutality event on on as an artwork like oh my gosh like showing black pain like that i don't really know you know i'm thinking about it very contemporarily like how would i receive that now as somebody maybe displaying a work of art with the ethics currently but i didn't think about it in 1993 because something like that in 1993 isn't gonna be shown and it's not going to be talked about mm-hmm. necessarily even though it kind of was but if you if you know the the story behind that it's just you know one incredibly sad well, and you know that yeah but but the, the i mean the yeah it, it's a tragedy first and foremost mm-hmm. i think the thing to remember is this is pre oj simpson oh trial. yeah true and there is an idea in the united states that i think will continue th- through the 90s and i think really and really until um maybe obama yeah and that idea of america as a post-racial society oh that's yes thank you for touching on that that is very important because there was there was this there was an idea that we had you know come through and now we have oh look at us we've got this great exhibition of all these diverse people and there's there's not a uh there's not a recognition of the problems that still exist i don't think people might have entirely understood what uh what it was like to be black and encounter a cop right you know right so you know it it was it was a totally different understanding because on the surface it seemed like oh well women and black people and people of all ethnicities seem to be moving up in the world and everybody's yes. kind of everybody's kind of functioning together and you know i i you know it's it's the even even within the black community there while there certainly were artists and 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 thinkers that recognized this as a problem like you know this was kind of the bill cosby pull up your pants mm-hmm. era too that there were even like established uh uh black celebrities that wanted to reject you know what they saw as culture that was holding black people back because that was right. that was the rhetoric at the time yeah 
and and you you can you can even see that i think with kind of that the, there still is kind of that idea i think amongst the older population black and white in the united states the For idea sure. that if we want to get past racism, we stop talking about it. Yes. Yeah. And that's not and that. And that very much comes out of this time period. So I can only imagine to have it sort of thrust in your face like that. Yeah. But I think I'm mm-hmm. going to say was kind of necessary. 100%. 100% necessary. Um, I, yeah. I think this shapes where things go, in my opinion from yeah. you know what i know yeah. i guess but it's like you know because i also it's something i've been thinking about as well at this time period and maybe throughout all american history but specifically now of you know kind of the erasure of culture because of in replace of american culture and american ideas yeah. and but you know you you see that a lot especially ha you know in in kind of the the loss of cultural traditions for favor of blending in which is not necessarily a new concept but now i think there's this re there's yeah. this curiosity for sure. And I'm so happy about it in all honesty of just this idea of people finding their cultural roots and trying to reestablish that. And of course that's way easier for some than others, clearly, you know, yeah. because of uh, past events and, you know, slavery yes. just well, to say, but, but the thing is the, the fear is assimilation on all fronts. Yeah. Um, some for, some for racist reasons, some for gentrification reasons. Right. Right. You know, gentrification being more valid than the racism. Let's just say that off the top. Yeah. But nowadays you at least, I think the, the the rhetoric has switched from, you know, because for the longest time, you know, you would hear melting pot yes, thrown yes. around. Um, and nowadays, I think the goal, the sort of the unreachable horizon that we should still strive for, that at least I've sort of been exposed to more recently, is the idea of a cultural archipelago. Oh, that's fun. A decentering. Yeah a decentering of what is culture mm. and the idea that things can transfer and move between these islands and this archipelago and yet they are still located and native and true to the places that they originate because that is that should be the goal that, yeah the, the goal should not be to make us all the same no absolutely not because that I think that's kind of more of a legitimate fear, but it's not it's not through uh becoming multilingual or something that you lose your that you lose your sense of self or being exposed to things outside of your your culture. It's when you have to give up something that is true to yourself mm-hmm. to fit in somewhere else that is what we do not want that is that is should that is and should be the goal right exactly of, of of what we try to do is we blend all of these things and the fear with all of these people i think seeing how the 80s treated the art mark was to be commodified that was the fear and that's a legitimate fear so you're going to get reactions to that when you put people like this and and give them a platform and you know those 
And clearly it was things that those critics did not want to hear and did not want to confront. Yeah, no, absolutely. They didn't want to confront it. And they wanted, they didn't want to really deal with this idea of the art world changing to something else. And I, I think there's some racist undertones there, if we're being honest. Yeah. But, you know, for, for yeah. where that criticism was coming from. But I don't want to necessarily simplify it to just that either. I think it's, it, it yeah. is quite literally this, I you know, not wanting to give up the Western dominated opinion on art, because if we've, if we've seen anything mm-hmm. throughout this exhibition or this three week long exhibition, mm-hmm. it's that art is happening everywhere at the same time mm-hmm. throughout yeah. the 20th century. It's not just in Europe. It's not even just in Japan. It's not in South America. It's everywhere. And that is so essential. Yeah. And this I think serves as almost a nice closing because it basically takes all of these people from different areas shows the works that's happening yeah. shows the socio-political ideas that are going on at the time and basically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. almost is like a precursor to what's going to happen in document 11 document 12 13 yeah. the the biennales and this just radical shift of the art world and where we're at today because even into the 2000s which you know we're not necessarily talking about that but there's just going to be a complete difference and then of course there's pre 911 post 911 yeah. but it's like you know it's all in all everything is happening yeah. all around the world and i think even this concept like you said of decentering and this this archipelago oh my god you archipelago i can never say that word is you know what the, i think the eventual goal is and even now you, that's so much at the forefront but it's really yeah. kind of comes to a explosion again during this time <laughs> and during the 90s and yeah. not in, in well, an easy way either. Yeah. It really, I think, is one that will shape what is to come afterwards. Yeah. I mean, the but but also remember, like, amongst all of these things that are happening, suddenly you throw, like now... Mm-hmm. You have a world where people are trying to make sense of what our what our future will look like. Um, and, you know, these tentative ideas that maybe we're all equal. And then right. suddenly you throw, let's say, a global health uh, epidemic yeah. in the middle of it. You suddenly realize, oh some people Mm -hmm. uh get to handle things better than others and you know i i it's going to be so hard to know how we contextualize corona in history and how we talk about it later but you know when we look back at at aids and we look back at we, we we look back at that era uh you know we we look at keith herring's work we look at uh we look at stonewall we look at all of these things and we understand that a generation was lost yeah and that those are not the people that got to go on and remember and and tell that story after the fact they the incredible pain that that inflicted on so many communities and in one in some ways affected affected across race affected across uh financial situation and yet i think 
even more deeply divided us. One in our access, you know, because it highlight one, it highlights how you know different demographics have different access to healthcare, but it brought about entirely new. It it reinforced old stereotypes and created brand new ones. Right. You know. Yeah. Um and it was not the all unifying thing that you know some people tried to make COVID out to be in the early days. Yeah, it wasn't very. That didn't age well. No. And you know, sort of on on the flip side of your uh, <laughs> of um on on all of this, I kind of wanted to sort of talk about the very end of this period, the very end of the twentieth century with something that I think weirdly encapsulates a lot of it. Okay. Um, and that is Woodstock 99. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. So that you're not confused with, you know, the 1969 Woodstock. This was a Woodstock that had, you know, Moby, Metallica, yeah. Everclear, Woo. Bruce Hornsby, Kid Rock. Kid Rock? Dave Matthews uh, Band, Alanis Morissette, no. James Brown, okay, okay, to sort of shake it up, Sheryl Crow, okay. Buck Cherry, who what? I have literally never noticed this before. I'm finding this out right now. I'm realizing Buck Cherry is, they switched around the letters to Chuck Berry. Oh, that's fun. That's like a dandy I've literally Warhol. never noticed that before. But anyways... The Roots, Insane Clown Posse. What? (laughs) Oh my God. Green Day. This is like Lollapalooza. Willie Nelson. Jesus. Rusted Root, Megadeth, Gobsmack. What? (laughs) John Entwistle. Oh my God. This is insane. Doesn't this sound like the best concert ever? This sounds like every EDM festival. You know, the thing about all of this is you can see what they're trying to do. They're trying to create mass appeal. Right. And Woodstock 99 was, by all accounts, incredibly miserable. Oh, no. Yes. Like, you know, they... was not in farmland was on basically the tarmac of a, uh, of an air force base. Oh my God. Seriously. In upstate New York. Jesus. Oh, limp biscuit was there. Of as well. course they were. Of course. Yes. Quite notoriously. Uh, and it was one of those things where at some point the, uh, the artists even turned on the crowd. Oh, in wow. The same, Cause there there was this was something where there was so much just anger hmm uh and you can you you see this weird thing of like trying to recreate something which you know i mean the original woodstock was something of a disaster in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> but it was not at this point I think it was kind of remembered as this monumental cultural event. Right. 
and had been romanticized enough that people might want to, you know, try to also have this big generation defining music event. And Mm. in, in trying to fabricate that as a consumable thing, it just failed so Uh, profoundly Oh wow! as, you know, as as something that I think a lot of artists, even the, the, the reputable ones that were there don't really like to address. It was, uh, incredibly violent. Oh man. There were numerous, and we probably will never know entirely how many sexual assaults there were. Jesus. Um, there were fights, there were, but even the musicians suddenly realizing that what they had been brought in for was not what they wanted. Right. That you think, you think as a musician that's, you know, sort of growing up in this era, this Gen X living in the shadow of the baby boomers and all of their music. And you're like, okay, now we get a chance. Now we get a shot at this. And suddenly realizing it's not what you wanted. Yeah, for sure. And it's just another, it's just another, it's just someone else trying to sell you something. Uh, um, yeah. You know, the the musicians turned on it. The people turned on it. They, you know, it was disgusting. There were people throwing oh, up everywhere and then, and then getting sick from that. And then people you know, relieving themselves everywhere. It was so unsanitary. So many people got sick. So many people were hurt. And I think it's only now becoming more recognized what what a disaster this was. Right. And what a bizarre close to uh, 20th century rock music this was. That Literally, yeah that you would not be able to when you you wouldn't you would not be able to do because like you know you even though this is this does kind of weirdly predict modern music festivals i think right yeah the idea that you get you you sort of stack a a festival like this Uh uh-huh um you know you because you can you cast a wide net you're like where else could in 1999 where else could you see uh the offspring corn and dmx in one place yeah true it's like a bargain brand <laughs> but it or, kind of is yeah. isn't it yeah it's like costco's ice yeah i mean because ice cube was there what yeah i mean so weird I'm, man that's such a weird I, lineup. I just can't imagine like can you imagine people just getting angry and hurting each other while counting crows is on stage somehow yes but it just sounds like the most 90s thing ever and i'm not yeah. and it's not a good thing it's just you ugh. know we've we've never even talked about Everclear before no. i mean i i have opinions on that band Ye- i don't really know the band so yeah they, they have one f- really famous song father of mine that's probably, uh, i probably know one, it that's probably yeah it. probably but basically, that's all of their songs. Is oh. this? It is. Uh, t- to me, this just sort of seems the pinnacle of it all. Yeah. This is. On one part, it's. 
it's it's white anger Mm -hmm. and another part it is a frustration at what people's idea of community and artistic expression yeah uh was and i i think it sort of rightfully lives in infamy yeah that's probably for the best this just sounds what a weird and strange but yet similar event that kind of i think encapsulates this feeling as you're saying i mean this is like i'm sorry but that lineup is absolutely insane but at the same time it's so fitting it's just it's just it's i i am i'm wrapping my head around this because it's not something i'm familiar with cast a wide net you catch a lot i mean there's there's logic was fish there I hope so. I don't know. If I Fish hope was so. There. That would be amazing. It seems like it. Everybody, Everybody else was there. It's just, it's just very much like this idea of every. No one wants to be there. The people who are there are already just like let's party until we die. Yeah. Literally, like I. It's just. I mean, it's it's the it's, it's a depressing end for sure to ninety nine. It it but it's also yeah. like that is the feeling, right? The shadow of the twentieth yeah. century. This grandiose and also horrific century um and it in a way it can be kind of summed up by this just we're gonna group a bunch of people together at a music festival and everybody's gonna get along because everybody's the same in a way and this is all just like we're gonna you know make this approachable for all and then here it is and i think you know if anything again this leads to i i think change and i mean there's so much that needs to be changed this is not because i think i think as as cynical as we are because cynicism is since the 90s has been such a cynicism and irony has been such a part of the vocabulary at this point it's difficult to get optimistic about anything yeah and we're very cautious of anybody that comes with with that kind of earnestness into trying to unite people uh, through creativity. Right, right. Oh my God, Vertical Horizon. What? Was that? Oh my God, Vertical Horizon was that Woodstock 99? I did not know that. <laughs> um. Anyways, have I, have I uh, told you, like for the past month now, I have been thinking about the music video to Rockstar by Nickelback. Oh, yeah there is something about it that it is either an incredible you know because that's more early 2000s but that's coming out of this period right um but it is either a brilliant observation of not only the shallowness of aspiring to be a quote-unquote rock star but also i think the music video itself seems to be mocking the fans of the people who would unironically love a song like this hmm interesting cuz you you and i have seen it oh it's a um, uh, it's something it's incredibly cheap and has the most gr- weird grab bag <laughs> of b-list celebrities and billy yeah. gibbons yeah um for some reason and everyone in it, I just feel like, like everyone in that music video that like they just have people off the street wearing, you know, 
shitty graphic tees, half-heartedly lip-syncing to Nickelback. Yeah. Like, everyone just looks like a Trump supporter. Like, Like, that's what we recognize it as now. It's just people that identify with this vague idea of rebelliousness and they do not seem to realize that that rebelliousness is a carefully calculated product yeah exactly and i can't tell whether or not the music video is aware of that i'm gonna lean on Uh, no but but if it is it's a brilliant piece of satire i I mean yeah or see joe it's either that or it's the worst thing i have ever seen i'm gonna go with the latter zan but there is hope Mm. Maybe I'm just wrong. I'm not going to be I'm not going to be certain about anything. What's the <laughs> point? But oh man, what a weird journey. What an incredibly weird journey. Yeah. We somehow we somehow uh started with Walter Benjamin and we got to Nickelback. How's that? That's that's really what the timeline is though if you think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it is it is Nickelback truly is something of reproduction. There's something there. Uh <laughs> i i have really honestly enjoyed this yeah this you know attempting to keep a keep a somewhat uh (laughs) clear train of thought through across three weeks has been somewhat of a challenge for me (laughs) i feel that a hundred percent there's i'll admit yeah, this was uh, this was fun. I, I, to hope, I hope it's been mildly coherent. Yeah. But you know what? If we were incoher- incoherent, that just reflects the nature um, of a decentralized uh, view of art history, which oh, is what we there should you all go. be striving for. Exactly. See, that's a good save. Uh, but it's the truth. It is the truth in that. And I think if you if you stuck it out for all three parts, uh, thank you. Firstly, yeah, for patroning the museum. Uh, if you're from the yeah. future. And you're hearing these tours. I hope you learned something, and I hope that this helps. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for those who who have joined us on this journey through art in the 20th century. It's been a lot of fun. I know to research. Yeah. I have learned a lot in researching this mm-hmm. and doing this this cura- and and helping with the curation uh, yeah. for this exhibit with Zan. It has been a definite journey of trying to see who's gonna pick what and match it up which is always great um well yeah no this has been this has been really fun and we're excited to see where we head next um uh what do we got going on joe what do you got to plug uh just my work the midnight drive go check it out on radiopapese.org uh zan your band's playing right Oh, yes. Ooh. Mothman will be playing at the uh, Florida State Fair on nice. April 23rd at 7 p.m. Ooh. I will I will <laughs> I will be in uh, be exhibited in the show Arte Natura in Hudson, New York this July. I'll get some dates out about that. Ooh. soon. I'm really excited. About Super exciting. That. I've got work up at Decidual Gallery in Ruskin, Florida. But yeah, if uh, you're you're hanging out in Florida, I'll be uh, 
I'll be around in a couple weeks and uh, come come listen to uh, Mothman. Go listen to some tunes. Go buy some art. Support your uh, museum tour guides here. That would be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We really appreciate you stopping by the Uncanny County Museum today. If you want to uh, pick up something in the gift shop, uh, we appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, if you want to uh, follow the museum after hours, we are at Uncanny Museum uh, on Twitter and at Uncanny County Museum on Instagram. Mm-hmm. If you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm at Josemino Art. And I am at Xanosaurus on Instagram. And thank you so much again for sticking it out with our experimental three-part series. We hope to do more of these in the coming future. If you have any topics, mm-hmm. anything interesting to plug, any response to this series. If you want to correct us, yes, please. with us. Yeah. Uh, meme us. I don't know. Add us on Twitter. Yeah. We'd love to hear from you. We absolutely would. Well, I guess that wraps it up for this tour. From the Uncanny County Museum, I have been Zan Peters. And I have been Joe Semino. Bye.